have got representatives from the IWW's Freelance Journalists Union with us this morning. Really excited to have them on with us. Liz Waters Hyde is a New York-based, uh, New York City-based media consultant and a labor organizer for the IWW with a focus on the publishing industry. She is one of the co-founders of the Freelance Journalists Union and IWW's New York City Printing and Publishing Workers Branch. Frank is a longtime freelance journalist. He has pieces in the New York Times, Newsweek, The Guardian, and Jacobin, and forthcoming work in The Industrial Worker. He's a member of the IWW and serves as a delegate for the IWW's Freelance Journalists Union. And Tim is a, uh, a freelance journalist, a contributor to Outcast, where, uh, uh, where they received where they were able to secure payment in unpaid invoices and a member of the IWW's Freelance Journalist Union. So we've got them all on the line, all three of those folks on the line. We're really excited to talk to them. And so right off the bat, uh, you know, before we get to how y'all had your big win, I'd like for you to talk to us a little bit about the Freelance Journalist Union as a structure. You know, by the nature of the job, freelance journalism is competitive. You don't have steady salaries. You don't have a constant employer. You don't have the same employer. And so the incentive structure would seem to be set up to push y'all, to push people in your profession towards competition and away from cooperation. But organizing yourselves into a union is, is going directly opposite of that, uh, of where the incentive structure would seem to be pushing you. So if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Sure. The Freelance Journalist Union is a campaign of the industrial workers of the world, which is an international labor union that was founded in the U.S. back in 1905. The industrial workers of the world has a long-standing history of organizing with the workers that were traditionally left behind by other trade unions. And from its beginning at the turn of the century, this has included women and people of color, immigrant workers, and the unemployed and temporary workers, and those working in low-paying industries. So we felt that this made the IWW a natural fit for organizing freelance workers, um, which is a section that until recently has been largely ignored by American labor unions. And as our economy becomes more and more reliant on various gig workers and independent contractors, we think that this really is an important subset of workers and that it complements organizing with more traditional workplace campaigns. So, for example, workers that have far more leverage to have their needs met if they can mobilize both staff and freelance writers or photographers, graphic designers, administrative workers, if they can do that simultaneously at one media outlet and effectively stop production and publication when necessary. And this gives the workers more power on the job and in the industry to really make positive changes that make their jobs more sustainable and their quality of life better. So this type of organizing across all job titles and in a particular workplace is an example of industry-focused unionism, which is where the term industrial in the IWW's name comes from. So the freelance journalist union fits into this as like one puzzle piece within the larger printing and publishing section of the IWW. And that allows us to really focus on the specific issues that freelancers face. And we can do that while also building solidarity with other types of workers within the industry as well for broader collective action. That's great. That's great. Yeah, in terms of the culture around freelance journalism, there is definitely um, the idea that we function as our own independent businesses. And in that 
uh, in that framework, it, I think it's easy to misconstrue what we're doing as competing with one another. For example, um, I, as a freelancer, am competing with uh, Tim for the same assignments, and thus we shouldn't actually work together because that would be at one of our detriments. Um, but if we step out of that sort of ideological framework, it's very clear to see that freelancers actually already cooperate very extensively. Um, for example, there's been um, a bigger movement within the freelance community to share information like, um, you know, editor's contact information or how much editors are offering per assignment or which publications are currently taking assignments, which publications are not. Um, this sort of information sharing illustrates that cooperation is actually beneficial to all freelancers, and that is really the kernel of the solidarity that the Freelance Journalist Union um, was built upon, the idea that we are, aren't actually competing for anything. Yes, freelance budgets are limited, but we can either fight for those dollars or we can work together to try to improve those budgets, try to make them larger, try to improve uh, payment times, try to improve rates. So rather than sort of squabbling over the pennies, we can try to fight for, you know, real dignity um, in our work if we can, you know, come together. Right. And I think I, I totally agree with that. A lot of folks, a lot of, um, you know, people that are uh, ostensibly conservative, free market type folks, they think that competition is the only the only good motivating, um, you know, uh, uh, human drive. But cooperation is just as powerful. And, I, you know, if, if you ask me, it's it's more powerful, it's more important, and it's, and it's better. But um, how are you getting freelancers to cooperate and organize together? You know, you're uh, like talking to me about the importance of cooperation, organization, solidarity. Like, it's not a tough sell, right? But for people who have been conditioned to think that they're in competition with you, that they need to withhold as much information as they can for their own personal benefit. What are you, what are you saying to them to, to, to convince them? How are you getting them to join the union, to join these industrial actions um, and go against the, the incentive structures of the system? Because they're very powerful. So what, do, what are you saying to them, to, to, to folks to get them to join the union and, and join you in your industrial actions? To some degree, we're not really saying anything new. Um, like I mentioned, a lot of this cooperation is already happening between freelancers because it's to our mutual benefit and it's developed very naturally over time, um, especially when you have structures that the Internet offers that makes it very easy for freelancers to speak with one another and share information. So to some degree, we're just um, nurturing that, um, that, that impulse that already exists. So, for example, you know, Freelancers already have been sharing, uh, you know, the rates that they receive for articles on Twitter. Um, all we've done is sort of formalize that a little bit. We have a spreadsheet that we uh, share with our members and anyone else in the freelance uh, community that says, like, editor X pays Y and is looking for Z. So to some degree, you know, we're just uh, formalizing some natural impulses that freelancers already have. Um, on another front, I think we're trying to build resources that freelancers have desperately been wanting uh, for a long time but could not make on an individual basis. So, for example, we provide press passes for freelance journalists, which, um, you know, are very common in our industry but are usually restricted to just staff writers um, mm. because they're associated with a publication. They can apply for a press pass with, like, sometimes their local police department or with um, a larger uh 
journalist organization, like a professional organization. This wasn't available to freelancers, so this is something that we created, a resource for them that they were um, really just telling us that they needed. Um, and then on the third front, I think we're bringing very sort of traditional um, union activity to freelancers who haven't been able to participate and stuff like that. You know, um, organizing freelancers to demand uh, for better working conditions. So, for example, you know, pushing publications to pay freelancers on time, pushing publications to pay uh, overdue invoices to freelancers. Um, so very like traditional union activity. So I think like if we think about those three different buckets, that's how we're bringing people into the union from natural impulses to offering them resources to really getting them involved in like very traditional union activities. Okay. So you mentioned that, you know, there, there's kind of been a long history of natural cooperation and, and stuff, and y'all are just formalizing this. So can you tell me when y'all were formed officially uh, and, and, and you began to start formalizing some of these cooperation processes that it, had it been occurring naturally? Sure. We started as a campaign of the IWW in the New York City branch in September of 2018. And we initially reached out to our professional networks to find freelance journalists who were interested in that and kind of spread from there. Um, then we launched publicly in the beginning of 2019. And by December of 2019, we were able to charter our first IWW branch, the Printing and Publishing Workers branch in New York City. Um, we're currently working on chartering an international printing and publishing workers section within the IWW since we have members from all over the world now. And um, we're currently working to expand our campaigns into freelance photographers and foreign co correspondents as well. Okay. And about how many members do y'all have right now? Um, so at this point, we have, have nearly 200 dues-paying members, um, which is wow. great. You know, um, dues money within the IWW is um, solely directed towards organizing expenses. Um, mm. None of our organizers are paid. We all do this voluntarily because we believe um, this is the only way to, like, build power within the working class and address the issues that confront us. Um, but outside of those sort of 200 dues-paying members, we have maybe four or 500 people who are involved in our organizing. And those people, like, really do a ton of work, even though they're not, like, dues-paying members. Like, they do one-on-one -on -one calls with new members. They come up with some of our organizing ideas. They help with uh, resources like the press passes that I mentioned. Um, so I feel like the distinction between dues-paying members and sort of our members is um, not really the most important metric to us because um, freelancing obviously is very precarious. So we don't demand that people um, pay dues necessarily to get involved in our organization. Uh, if freelance journalists want to get involved, they can just reach out to us. We can get them plugged in with everything that we're doing Um so, yeah, I think that's, like, allowed us to really accommodate a lot of people without necessarily saying you have to pay dues because, like I said, freelancing is very precarious. Right. And so we've got about a minute left here before we've got a hard break, and we're going to bring you all on in, in the next segment. But really quickly, do you have any way of estimating how many freelancers there are in North America? And do they have any conferences for freelancers or anything like that where you all go and table or try to organize? So... This is actually a really tough question. There is um, Bureau of Labor Statistics um, figures on this, and I think that runs about like 85,000. Um, but in terms of conferences, it's not something we've done, but it is something that we're interested in pursuing in the future. Okay. All right. We're going to be talking to you about the specific industrial action on the next side of the break. Stay tuned. This is the Valley Labor Report. 
You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. The attorneys of Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to stand with organized labor and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report. It is what their firm is built on, and they recognize how important unions are to the country. Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are experienced attorneys who can help with your workplace injuries and disability claims. Whether you are a steel worker, coal miner, railroad worker, or machinist, we help all injured workers. Visit www.mtandj.com to find out more. Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs, attorneys for labor, attorneys for you. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the machinist unions, over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We have been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or organize at iamaw44.org. Here in Huntsville, federal employees are an invaluable part of the nation's defense, offering unmatched expertise in engineering and technology and as stewards of taxpayer dollars. What we ask for in return is to be treated with fairness, dignity, and respect. The American Federation of Government Employees, AFGE Local 1858, is a union of working people looking out for each other, making sure that we're treated right. To inquire about joining or to learn more, call 256 256- 876-4880. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. On the line we have uh, members and delegates for the IWW's Freelance Journalist Union. We have Bliss Waters, Hyde, Frank, and Tim here on the line with us talking to us about how they were able to secure $150,000 in overdue invoices for freelance journalists. Uh, In the last segment, they were talking to us more about the structure of the union, and so uh, now we're on to the good stuff. So like I said, they were able to secure payment of $150,000 in overdue invoices for freelance journalists. So if y'all could tell us how y'all came up with the idea to make that a goal, firstly, and how did you do it, secondly? Yeah, Tim, would you like to take this one? Oh, is this me? I thought I was doing a different one. Um, yeah, so uh, we, I think, 
an interesting thing about this is, well, I guess the, how we came up with the um, outside, uh, the the idea to to work on a project um, targeting outside specifically was they were just kind of known across the freelance industry as a consistent bad actor, and they, you know, really habitually pay months to sometimes even years late. And um, just for the for audience. Just for the audience, um, outside is a publication that freelance journalists would contribute to sometimes. Yes, um, and so we basically uh, we 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 just thought they would be a good a good place to start with if we were trying to address this issue of late payment in general. Um, so we kind of surveyed a lot of people we knew had contributed and came up. I think something that's interesting is the number that we came up with was actually uh, did not reach 150,000. But once they, uh, that that's not how much we necessarily thought they owed, although we, we, we knew it was probably more than what we had found because we hadn't talked to everyone. Um, so it was interesting to see that once we started pressuring them on this, that they uh, actually um, kind of immediately said they would pay much more money than we even for sure knew that they owed people. It just shows that the problem was kind of exactly as bad as we thought it was. Right. And so, um, so that's how you came up with the goal. How, how would y'all, how did y'all manage to, to do it? Like what was your leverage going into these? You know, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know that there were any formal negotiations, and you can tell us if they were. But but what were you, what was your leverage, and how did you actually go about um, executing this this uh, action? Yeah, so I think the first. I mean, I think one interesting thing is that because the uh, world of freelancers is really does not have a lot of history of, of union work. Um, I think people are not really used to having to deal with that from freelancers. So we basically, I mean, I think the, the first and probably the most important thing was kind of doing a lot of fact finding and getting a lot of information together from freelancers who had worked for outside in the past. Um, so we could kind of get a broad sense of how big the problem was. And then, I mean, once we approached outside, we were in a pretty, you know, we, we knew we had a lot of information about what they were doing wrong and what, uh, what our plan of action was. So we approached them initially with this letter saying, Hey, we know, you know, you're, you know, you're doing this wrong. Everyone knows you're doing this wrong. Can you fix it? Or, and if you don't, um, things are going to start getting worse for you. So thankfully they actually kind of immediately, I think a lot of people there knew it was a problem too. So they kind of immediately just um, ag- agreed to a-, a large part of what of our demands had been. But we, we had a plan to, I, c- I think in the background was we had done our, our research and had a plan for how to make life more difficult for them if they didn't, um, if they didn't do the right thing. Right. Yeah. And that, that's really important is, is um, you know, being able to know what your leverage is with, in any campaign, any, any action, any, any time where you have a goal. It's important to know what your leverage is and how you can uh, how you can use it best. So what can other, 
gig workers or so-called independent contract workers like Uber drivers or musicians learn from your organization and from this industrial action? You know, like we've got a bunch of local musicians here that have um, that I've heard have exactly the same problem that y'all had with Outside and with other publications. They have late or non-payment for gigs. Um, and, and, you know, they're not employed by the bar that they play at. So, oh, and, you know, same with Uber drivers. They're ostensibly not employed by Uber. What what can these folks learn from the Freelance Journalist Union? So <clears throat> we actually really learned a lot from other uh, gig economy workers to begin with. Um, a large part of the inspiration for the Freelance Journalist Union was actually the IWW in the UK, which was organizing Uber Eats drivers. Um, who are, you know, similarly gig economy employees, um, you know, probably more precarious than freelance journalists are. Um, so we were able to learn from them because when it comes down to it, the dynamics between the employer and the worker are very similar. Like we don't have any city work. We can't <clears throat> um, necessarily appeal to the law and um, our labor rights um, because we're not considered workers. We're considered independent contractors. But really, you know, the source of power remains the same, where if you can get workers together and identify your common grievances, then you can, like we do with outside, you know, select a target that um, you can pressure to meet your demands. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the situation is with musicians um, in your area, but, you know, if there is one... Um, venue that refuses to pay or, or pay on time. It's about like making sure that, you know, who actually has that grievance, getting those people to start talking with one another and, you know, determining ways that you can pressure that, um, that venue to pay up, whether they be legalistic by taking them to court or, you know, more social by putting pressure on them uh, on social media or, you know, old school pickets, stuff like that, or, you know, even boycotts. Right. Uh, and so, we're wrapping up the interview here. Uh, one of y'all mentioned something about a fundraiser that the Freelance Journalist Union is doing in conjunction with the Industrial Worker, which is the IWW's uh, official publication. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what that is and how we can donate to it? <clears throat> yeah, the Industrial Worker is actually one of the oldest um, continuously running labor outlets in the world. Um, but certainly in the United States, uh, it's been printing since I believe 1907. As you mentioned, it's the IWW's official publication. Um, so the Freelance Journalist Union is working with Industrial Worker on this fundraiser to basically raise money to pay uh, its contributors. Um, like much of the IWW, the Industrial Worker traditionally ran on um, volunteer labor, but we're hoping to get folks paid Um because of the current economic crisis. So if you're able to, you can just Google, you know, GoFundMe, industrial worker, and that should bring up the fundraiser. Okay, thank you. This is the Valley Labor Report. We've had the IWW's Freelance Journalist Union on to talk to us. Uh, stay tuned. We've got more after the break. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead.
We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation, from the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow. We have overcome before and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four, climate.org to learn more. All workers deserve fair wages, affordable health care, and a retirement plan that enables them to retire with dignity. All workers deserve to have a say about the terms and conditions of their employment, not just the bosses. With the Machinist Unions, over 600,000 members having our back, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama has been serving workers' interests for over 20 years. Our members have the best health insurance in the area with zero deductible plans. We set the bar for pay in the area with over $40 an hour rates, consistently averaging the highest non-college degree jobs in North Alabama with some of the best retirement plans in the industry. We can do the same for you. Together, we remain united, raising our voices to ensure justice on the job and service in the community. The Machinist Union is a true Southern Union founded in Atlanta in 1888. We've been serving members' needs for 132 years. The longevity of our union proves our dedication and loyalty to the working class. The Machinist Union isn't just for machinists. We represent workers in government, health care, auto workers, aerospace workers, transportation workers, the defense industry, and woodworking. Our members even build the iconic Harley-Davidson motorcycles. If you're ready to get serious about better benefits and wages, if you want to have a voice in your workplace with over 600,000 members to back you up, call or email us today at 256-286-3704 or Organize at IAMAW44.org. Welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host David Story. David and I both believe very strongly that unions are good for workers. We've come to believe this through years of research, experience, and practice. The goal of the show is to communicate this truth with a wider audience. And in pursuit of that goal, it's sometimes necessary to back up and talk about fundamentals. I know what it's like to grow up in rural Alabama and not even know what a union is. I don't believe that I have any family that's a member of a union. I don't there's not a history in my heritage of unions and If you had asked me when I graduated high school what a union was, what they do, I would have, I I wouldn't have really had an answer for you. Um, Most people in Alabama don't. Most people in Alabama have no clue what a union is or what they do. That's exactly right. I, you know, I I could have talked a little bit about what I learned in my history books, but. You know, just by and large, I really didn't know. And so a lot of folks are in that situation. They don't even know what a union is, much less how it functions or how it can be helpful to them at their workplace. And so we've been talking for some time before we got on the air, actually, um, about this, about kind of the fundamentals. Uh, And we've created a couple of YouTube videos about what a union is. You can um, look up our YouTube channel, The Valley Labor Report on YouTube and you can find those. Uh, we talked about what it is structurally, what a union is. We talked about 
uh, day-to-day operations of a union. We talked about some labor history. And like I said, if you want to go check uh, check those out, they're still on YouTube. And I think there's some really good information in there. But today, we wanted to talk about the real material benefits that unions bring to their members, to their community, and even, believe it or not, their companies, although that, in my opinion, is secondary. Um, And then we're going to explain why that is. So... Firstly, uh, you know, th- and this one is the most obvious. It's the one that, that gets bandied about the most when, when you talk to union advocates. It, there's a wage premium that unions bring to workers. Uh, among full-time salary and wage earners, union workers make about 23% more than their non-union counterparts. That's from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that, that's, you know, 23%, that's a lot of money. Now, of course, as with anything, there's, there's going to be differing views on this. There's going to be arguments to be had. And one of the anti-union wage premium arguments is that this aggregate data is not rigorous enough. There are likely confounding variables distorting the data that, uh, you know, say unions are concentrated in areas with higher cost of living. And so, of course, the union wages are going to be higher because there are more union members, say, in New York or California, where the cost of living is is much more than, say, in Alabama. And so if you compare those wages, it doesn't really make sense. And, and you know, that that's a good argument, right? It doesn't make sense to compare what a union person makes in New York to a non-union person makes in Alabama. And so there have been plenty of studies that take into account those variables. They take into account education, experience, geography, which I think is one of the most important things. And in all of these studies, in almost every industry, you still get a union wage premium, just a little bit smaller one, something like 10 to 20%. And, you know, the fact that, like, anti-union advocates throw this around, they say, oh, it's just a smaller wage premium. Like, a 10% raise? 10% is pretty good. 10% is darn good. I don't know. There, You know, how many times in your career do you get a 10% raise? Well, and you got to couple that with the fact that, uh, you know, most most non-union workers and most non-union companies don't want to ad- to address it, but the fact is, union wages, even in the area, increase the wages of everybody around because in the market, then all of a sudden the the companies are competing for that same labor group, so they're going to have to wait, raise their wages to uh, to compete. And one of the things that that uh, you know it, it, coincidentally. When we were in negotiations with uh, with my union, not this past contract, but the contract before, even the chief negotiator there said that in in the uh, in the business community that the other CEOs and and plant managers in the area had came to her and said, "Your employees are making way too much money. We're having a difficult time competing with those with that same labor group," and so. Uh, he, she brought that to the table and said, "Look, y'all, y'all are asking for too much, but the fact of the matter is, we're we're worth it." And that's 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 one of the things that everybody has to get in their mindset is, if you're making money for the company, then you are worth what you're making. That's exactly right, and that's another thing. Unions increase non-union wages, and that makes intuitive sense. Obviously, like David was talking about, if unions increase wages for their members, and they do. 
then they create employer-side competition. And this is something that anti-union folks love as long as it's the workers that are competing to bring home enough money to live on. But they don't like it so much when it's the employer having to compete by raising wages. The non-union workers most benefited by strong union presence are men with no more than a high school degree. For those workers, the decline in union density since 1979 has meant a $3,200 decrease in annual wages. You know, lots of folks talk about wage stagnation since the 70s and the 80s. And that is, like I was talking about before, that's aggregate data. When you actually look at different groups of folks, when you look at non-union men, men that have no more than a high school degree, their wages have gone down. They would have gone up if we had kept the union density that we had. And how can we know this? We know that because even when the union, uh, even when the labor movement was at its strongest, there have always been pockets of the U.S. or certain industries that uh, have been resistant to unionization efforts, and we can compare real non-union wages in union-dense areas to real non-union wages in areas with sparse representation and see uh, uh, what changes are made when there's a really strong union density in the non-union labor market. And that's something that, you know, uh, uh, that, that's something that's not talked about enough is that unions are good for all workers. We increase the wages. We increase the working conditions. We, uh, we make better the working conditions. We make better the benefits for everybody in the same labor market as us. Yeah. Yeah. Healthcare. 95% of civilian union workers have uh, employer-sponsored health care. 68% of non-union workers have access to employer-sponsored health care. Yeah. That was in 2019. Not just employer-sponsored health care, too, I'd like to point out, but better employer-sponsored exactly. health care. You know, whenever I talk to people out on the streets and tell them about my health care and the fact that all I, all I do whenever I go to the doctor is make a copay, or when when uh, we have to go to the hospital, my wife had uh, some issues a few months ago, and I paid 150 bucks, and that was it. There's no deductibles in my mm -hmm. in my health insurance. So you know, while everybody else is out there trying to figure out can I get these surgeries in by the end of the year, we don't have to worry about that. Right. It's 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 a hundred percent better for every different healthcare benefit. Uh, whether you talk about short term disability, whether you talk about this or that, union workers have it. More often, they pay less and they get more services in return. Retirement. 90% of union workers have retirement plans with their employers compared to 77% of non-union workers. Safety is a very important Safety one. is very important, yep. Unionization is associated with a 13 to 30% drop in traumatic injuries and a 28 to 83% drop in fatalities. Unions are the embodiment of solidarity, cooperation, and brotherhood of working people, and they care more about their safety than businesses do. Laws and regulations are reactive. Unions are proactive. This is the Valley Labor Report. We'll talk more after the break. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report with David Story and Jacob Morrison. 
The attorneys of Maple Tucker and Jacobs are proud to stand with organized labor and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report. It is what their firm is built on, and they recognize how important unions are to the country. Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are experienced attorneys who can help with your workplace injuries and disability claims. Whether you are a steel worker, coal miner, railroad worker, or machinist, we help all injured workers. Visit www.mtandj.com to find out more. Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs, attorneys for labor, attorneys for you. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Public schools are critical to the success of communities and democracy. Now more than ever, our educators and school support staff are going above and beyond to support our students and families. We at the Alabama Education Association are proud to represent the hardworking employees of our public schools and colleges. Thank you for all of your love and dedication to Alabama students. Please take care and stay safe. Ours are the first generations to feel the effects of climate change and the last to be able to do anything about it. The window to meet this historic challenge is closing. We're already losing our lives and livelihoods. Millions have already been impacted by climate change. We can passively accept this fate or we can join together and take back our power. If we so choose, our best days are ahead. We have a legacy of coming together to face crises that threaten the very ideals of our nation, from the horrors of slavery to the depths of the Great Depression, from the spread of fascism during World War II to the rise of Jim Crow. We have overcome before, and we have the power to do it again. Let's end the climate crisis by igniting a transformational new era where the government works for the common good. Go to arminarmforclimate.org. That's arm in arm, the number four, climate. .org to learn more. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host David Story. We were talking about the benefits of unionization um, that that unions bring to workers, that unions bring to their communities. And when we left off, we were talking about safety. We talked about how there's nearly a 30% drop in traumatic injuries that are associated with union workers and a, a 30 to 80% drop in fatalities at union workplaces. Let's and, let's talk about that for a second yeah. because you know a lot of times you, you, we bring up these numbers and like uh, hourly wage increases and how they're better than non-union areas and everybody knows why because we go in and negotiate collectively as a group so we get more as a group than somebody going in and trying to ask for a raise on their own but a lot of people don't understand the reasoning behind why the safety aspect is more uh, important and the workplace is safer in a union area and that's because in a union, generally you set up in your contract with a company a safety committee that is made up of the workers. And we have a group of three workers at, at our plant. They're members of the safety committee, and they sit down with the company every month to meet and, and go over what were the accidents that happened this past month. How can we uh, how can we fix these? How can we alleviate these, whether it be 
uh, through, you know, maybe it was an employee that made a mistake or maybe the equipment was failing. But they're out on the floor every day talking to people and trying to figure out how we can make the workplace a safer environment for everybody. And that's why you see that greater increase in safety awareness and safe workplaces and unions as opposed to non-union places. Right. And, you know, like technocratic liberal types, they may think, you know, there, there are some, some like liberal types that are like, oh, well, we don't need unions anymore. We've evolved past the need for unions or, or whatever. And they think that maybe laws and regulations can substitute for that. But there, they, there is no substitute because the laws and regulations or whatever that government tries to do, there's just simply like the government is not going to have the budget to put, like you said, three workers at every single workplace to oversee the safety and, and you know, and, and even if they did, those workers are not, you know, they don't have the same relationship to the employer and to the coworkers there that a union safety committee does. It, yeah. and, and, and the studies bear this out. Like laws and regulations, they just simply don't work yeah, as for, well as every, unions All do. the conservatives that, that, that are out there that want to talk about free market and reduce – you know, an overbearing government or the regulations that government put in place. Well, this is your alternative to that free market. Right. You know, in the free market is let's get rid of some of this government oversight and let's let the workers handle it because who right. knows better how to make their workplace safe than the workers. Right. You know, um, legislation and re regulation is reactive. Like that comes in most often, you know, sometimes there's some proactive legislation or regulation, but it's not, it's not common. Usually what happens is they set up a penalty if something bad happens. What unions do, what, what those safety committees do, they are proactive. They constantly patrol the work site and make sure that workers are safe and, and talk to the workers about what they need. It's not it's not reactive. It's proactive. And that's the difference. Yep. And we you know, one one thing that we do in our places and I'm sure y'all do it out there as well is the fact that, you know, if, if a worker feels unsafe on the job, they they bring up one of the stewards and bring the steward over and say, hey, I, I, I don't think this is right. You know, maybe uh, maybe maybe the equipment's faulty. You never right. do know. But, uh, you know, they say, hey, I'm not too sure about this. And we've got it in our contract where it says, look, if a worker feels safe, we're going to stop right then. We're going to call folks over and let's get this handled. And, and we don't go back to work until everybody feels safe. Right. And and one of the reasons one of the reasons that, you know, not even just that there's a safety committee, but like when you have a union contract, you can't be fired unless you have uh, or, or there are there are provisions in there that that say that, you know, after a certain time, you have a probationary period in a lot of in a lot of contracts. But they say that uh, you can't be fired unless you have just cause. So in union workplaces, workers have much more freedom and they feel that freedom to say something like you were talking about, like, hey, you know, talk to my steward. I don't really feel comfortable with this. Can you check this out for me? Or where in a non-union workplace, they may be afraid and rightfully so that if they say something, they'll be fired or they'll be retaliated against or they'll have their pay docked for yeah. uh, noting a safety concern. And that's that's common. That's common. And, you know, they have reason to be afraid. We're in a union workplace. Uh, they are much more free and they can, you know, workers can tackle problems that, that managers, that supervisors, that CEOs and bosses, they just don't see because they're not on the floor doing the job. 
Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, to take into consideration is we talk about these contracts a lot. And these contracts, you know, it, it probably bears to clarify that these contracts, a lot of times when you talk uh, to people that's never been in a union, they think, oh, the international or the union, the big union bosses is going to come in and tell you what to do. Look, these contracts are negotiated with the people in your plant. I'm on the right. negotiating committee in our plant. We sit down with the company and negotiate these uh, months in advance, and it's voted on by the people in your plant. It's a very democratic uh, way of handling things. You right. know, if we don't get fifty uh, percent, then you know we go back to the table and try to try to work on something different. But the the point is. There's no big union bosses that's coming in to tell you what to do whenever you're in a union. The union is all the workers, and right. those contracts take that gray area, that uh, that unknown out of what your daily work is. You know what your work schedule is. You know what your shift is. You know it's not going to change. The, the, the manager ain't going to be able to come in and tell you tomorrow, hey, you got to go to third shift. I don't care what your what your family situation is. Mm -hmm. If you don't go, you're terminated. Right. Those contracts take away mm -hmm. all those unknowns and clarify everything for everybody. Right now, I, I think that if I remember correctly, you've never had a non-union job, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, David, like, probably can't even imagine this, but like, I've worked in a lot of non-union workplaces, and you know, talking. If I were to go back there or, or back in time and say, you know. Uh, Jake, and in, in, in your future contract, in your future employment contracts, you're going to be able to like help write them or something, or or tell my coworkers or tell people that I used to work with, tell them today that like if you organize and you uh, get your coworkers together in your workplace, you can write the contract that you're employed under. You can help write that with your boss. Like that's just not something that people who don't work in a union workplace, that's just not something that that they're familiar with and that's not something that that well it just doesn't happen. Yeah. Who wants to go who wants to go year to year wondering if you're going to get a raise? Right. You know, that's one, you know, one of the big benefits is hey, we got a 4-year contract. We know we're going to get 3%, 3%, 3% every year. Or you know, who like if you're talking about service workers, those folks, they go week to week not knowing when they're going to work. Yeah. Or not knowing how much they're going to work. Yeah. I remember working at a restaurant one week just because uh just because the boss on a whim decided to hire three more servers, I went from working 60 hours a week to working 25 hours a week. I didn't have any say over that. I didn't. There wasn't anything I could do. The boss hired three more servers uh, to punish somebody for like not coming in on time, and so all of us got our hours cut in half. And like you know, I was at home. I was living at home, right? I didn't have bills or or I didn't have like rent to pay or anything, so it wasn't that big a deal for me at the time. But there were people that I worked with that had children. They had rent. They had gas to pay. They had car insurance. They had to put food in their children's mouths, yeah. and you know they just. And their hours were just cut in half. Yeah. It's, yeah. And At the whim of the boss. Yep. It's, it, it's sickening, really. And that's, yeah. that's one of the things, that's one of the great things about being a union member is you, it, it takes away all that gray area. You know exactly what your roles and responsibilities are, and you know exactly what the company's roles and responsibilities are. Right. And, you know, like the, you talked about this a little bit, you know, but the, the reason, 
that that's able to happen is, you know, like unions, they bring better wages, they bring better retirement packages, they bring better health care, they increase non-union wages. And like, so the question is, why does that happen? Are unions magic? And no, unions aren't magic. The, the, the reason is that the collective bargaining process, whether it's formal or informal, it brings more leverage to everybody because no matter how talented you are as an individual, you are not worth the whole workforce. The whole workforce, the, you know, the sum is greater than the, uh, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, right? right. Uh, 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 so when you all bargain together collectively, you bring all your skills, all your talents, all your experience, everything to the table, uh, and you get more for it, you know? Yeah. Like, that's that's the simple fact. No matter how you calculate it, um, uh, it, you're just not worth the whole workforce, and you cannot bring the leverage of the whole workforce into individual contract negotiations. Like it just doesn't work that way. Uh, that's the reason that collective bargaining is so important. So uh, we're going to take another break. If you'd like to weigh in on the other side, call one eight six six four nine four WVNN. Again, that's one eight six six four nine four nine eight six six. This is the Valley Labor Report. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. The attorneys of Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to stand with organized labor and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report. It is what their firm is built on, and they recognize how important unions are to the country. Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are experienced attorneys who can help with your workplace injuries and disability claims. Whether you are a steel worker, coal miner, railroad worker, or machinist, we help all injured workers. Visit www.mtandj.com to find out more. Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs, attorneys for labor, attorneys for you. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Hometown Action is concerned Alabama's small towns and rural communities increasingly are coming under attack by corporate interests that run local shops out of businesses, shutter our rural hospitals, and pollute our rivers, providing only unstable poverty wage jobs with no health insurance. We know workers and local residents understand the best solution to local problems. Together, we can build the multiracial, working-class power we need to take back our communities. Please join us online at www.hometownaction.org. Thanks for standing with workers, supporting Valley Labor Talk. Public schools are critical to the success of communities and democracy. Now more than ever, our educators and school support staff are going above and beyond to support our students and families. We at the Alabama Education Association are proud to represent the hardworking employees of our public schools and colleges. Thank you for all of your love and dedication to Alabama students. Please take care and stay safe. The Valley Labor Report is also supported by listeners like you. If you value the work that we are doing, injecting a different perspective into talk radio, and you have the means, consider signing up for a monthly donation on patreon.com slash the Valley Labor Report. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash the Valley Labor Report to support our work and keep us on the air. 
The attorneys of Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to stand with organized labor and are proud to support the Valley Labor Report. It is what their firm is built on, and they recognize how important unions are to the country. Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are experienced attorneys who can help with your workplace injuries and disability claims. Whether you are a steel worker, coal miner, railroad worker, or machinist, we help all injured workers. Visit www.mtandj.com to find out more. Maple, Tucker, and Jacobs, attorneys for labor, attorneys for you. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. Again, uh, the number to call if you'd like to weigh in, talk to, talk to us about unions, ask us some questions. The number is one 494 wvnn 1-866-494-9866. So we're going to move on to some news, uh, some Alabama news. Uh, Montgomery His, uh, Hospitals last week announced that they are running out of ICU beds. And, you know, that that's, that, that's just another illustration of how the push to reopen is not about safe public policy. It's about exploiting workers and benefiting the rich. And I do just want to I want to preface this with saying that, you know, I'm not against reopening some sectors of the economy or allowing some people to move back into the office. I think that there are there are definitely reasons to do that, but there are ways to do that where you protect people who are at risk. And we're not doing that. Like if if uh, like we mentioned last week, I think it was if you get called back for work, no matter what your situation is, if you do not go back, you lose your unemployment benefits. You lose your livelihood. So what if you're a 75-year-old person working at McDonald's who is living on Social Security and they don't have enough money to, uh, you know, that's not enough money to live on and they are try- and they have to work at McDonald's to make ends meet? What if you get called back uh, but you can't or, or but you don't feel safe? You know, you're, you're 75 years old. You've got... Uh, you're a cancer survivor, you have COPD or asthma or, or whatever else, whatever else these comorbidities are that make COVID-19 a threat. Well, you know, that's you're you're just out of luck. You're just out of luck. You got to go back to work. You got to serve these people at McDonald's. And, and you know, like it doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter. And, and I think that's something that we need to that everybody needs to take in, into consideration is the fact that. I recognize there's a lot of people that want to get back to work, mm-hmm. and I know there's a lot of employee, employers that want to get back to work, but you, there's a lot of employees that are still scared to death, and there's a lot of employees and employers that are not taking those considerations, uh, taking those safety cons- things into consideration. And, you know, my daughter was just asking last week about going to a restaurant. I'm like, look. Oh, we're not going to go to a restaurant right now because I still don't trust that the manager in that restaurant, I know how they operate. You, yeah, you of all people know, know how they operate. They and I don't trust that they are taking the worker's safety into consideration. And I certainly don't trust that they're taking their patron's safety into consideration. So, you know, and, and the workers are, if they're being forced back to work, then that I, we both know that people are living paycheck to paycheck. Whether they're sick or not, there's a good chance they're going to go into work. And 
Yeah. God they knows have, who they don't it. have any choice but to. Exactly. And I yeah. don't I don't want to be the one on the on the receiving end of of the worker being forced in and sick and not knowing whether they have the covid or not. Yeah, you know that that's exactly right. And and they're passing uh KIV passed an executive order that says that you know, if you're a uh, uh if you're a business, you're going to be protected from liability or whatever. And you know that that just goes to show like this is not about keeping people safe it's about exploiting workers and benefiting the rich and you can look at that yeah, you yeah, can you look at the people the, that are uh, behind the push the groups that are pushing this yeah, uh, save our country coalition the american legislative exchange council the state policy network these are all billionaire funded uh, they're billionaire funded right wing groups and you can see it in the solutions that they advocate the solutions include laying off a quarter of the states uh, non-essential, quote-unquote, public employees, shuttering local libraries, hiking state employees' health care premiums, raising in-state tuition at public universities. I mean, you know, this is just it's – a, it's a billionaire fever dream. It's not about – it's not about safe public policy. It's not about that. It's about exploiting workers. It's about benefiting the rich. It's about making sure that these oligarch donors have – more money in their pockets. You know, another thing to talk about, there, there have been 17 hospitals that have been shut down in the last 10 years. That didn't have to happen. If we had expanded Medicaid, uh, we, th- th- these hospitals wouldn't have closed. We can see that in states that expanded Medicaid, we didn't have, uh, we, we didn't have um, all these hospitals that closed in these other states. Uh, David, you're telling me we've got a caller on the line? I can't hear you. My apologies. We do. One of our sponsors is on the line, actually, wanting to talk about some uh, workers' rights. Okay, fantastic. Well, good morning, guys. This is Jack. This yeah, is this Jack is Jacobs. How you doing? Oh, Jack Jacobs. Can I can't you hear. Still him. there? Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, this is this is Jack Jacobs, right? That's right. Yes, so uh, Jack Jacobs is uh, an attorney at Maple Tucker and Jacobs LLC, uh, workers' rights uh, 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 law firm. And uh, so, what what did you want to talk to us about? Well, you know, just hearing y'all talk about the importance of union safety, just really, um, especially in this time of COVID, is just kind of I've seen it firsthand how important unions are in this fight. Uh, here in the Birmingham area, the you know, mine workers have been very vocal in making sure their guys are, are protected and, and socially distanced while they work. And I don't think that would have happened if the union had been there fighting for it uh, from the start. Yeah, if there's one thing that the mine workers know about is respiratory illnesses mm-hmm. and respiratory diseases over the past hundred years that they've been struggling to bring in workplace safety. That's very true. I mean, these these guys are, you know, at risk anyway with uh, black lung, but then to have the added threat of getting a COVID disease is just, uh, you know, add so much to that. Right, and you know that that's exactly right. You know, if if these places that have that are trying to call employees back, uh, if they had unions there, the unions could be there to negotiate the terms of the re-return. 
Yeah, of the return to work. You know, like it, it wouldn't just be that the employer, oh, you know, I, I'm Mr. Bossman and I've got all the power and I'm going to tell you the terms that you have to return to work. Otherwise, not only will you not get a paycheck from me, you won't get unemployment from the state. I will call the Department of Labor to make sure that you're not getting it. That's what our Department of Labor in Alabama has instructed employers to do. If they had, if everybody had unions, Everybody would be able to negotiate the terms of their return to work, and they, like David was talking about, we would have committee men on uh, committee men, committee women uh, at these workplaces, making sure that people are properly social distancing, making sure that workplaces have proper PPE, making sure that you know all of these things are in place, and the return to work would not be nearly as scary for so many people, and it wouldn't be necessary for some people. You know, we could we could make sure that some people stay. Uh, off the work site for longer that need to be off the work site for longer. Like I was talking about, you know, those people that have those comorbidities that make the coronavirus uh, a real, real threat. You know, it's a threat to everybody, but there are people uh, that are more at risk than others. Yep. And what are you seeing? I think that's right. And so, go ahead. I'm sorry. You know, with the with the mine workers, they've you know they've basically got 65 people normally going down an elevator shaft to start the shift at a time. And they've negotiated where they know they're going to start staggering shifts and go six at a time. They can socially distance and not have to worry about uh, being too close to the coworkers. Yeah. And that's, you know, obviously a lot of burden uh, on the company having to stagger this all out. But, you know, because the union's there to, to speak out, they're, they're getting these things done. And I'm, I'm really proud of what they've done for those guys. Yeah, that's uh, everything that we're seeing. The same way in my workplace is uh, is completely focused on uh, workplace safety. You know, Jacob mentioned the the, the Department of Labor a moment ago, and you, I'm sure you've been a lawyer work uh, hand in hand with them a lot. And it's worth mentioning that you know the the Department of Labor and a lot of other states actually look out for the employees in those states and because of the administration that we've elected in this state we don't see the department of labor working with employees almost at all they're they're ostensibly a a uh, a whipping stick for the employers and uh you know it a lot of people think elections don't have consequences but uh, that's one of the, yeah. one of the things that we see consistently across the board is uh you know they these appointed positions that are uh, that are supposed to be working for for workers and they're they're effectively uh, just forcing workers to do what the employ- employers want. Yeah, that's my experience as well. I, my involvement with the labor department for the state has been it's more about labor management than it is protecting workers, and yeah. it's just uh, very frustrating. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, it's it's really frustrating when, you know, ostensibly the state is supposed to be, you know, a representation of the people. It's supposed to be supposed to be functioning on the people's interests uh, for the people's interests. And, and you know, it, it's it is it's true. And this is the state of affairs that we live in. But, uh, you know, it's sad to see the state functioning as, um, you know, the uh, the, the big stick for the for the boss, for the corporations, for the uh, for the wealthy elite. Yeah, we got about two more minutes. Is there anything you want to uh, mention about the mine workers or anything like that that y'all are currently doing before we wrap up this segment? You know, we you know we do a lot of work with those guys when they get black lung and, and hurt in the mines. That's you know a lot of what we do. 
And so we, but we do get concerned with, you know, making sure these guys aren't getting, you know, COVID disease. And this is affecting a lot of, you know, uh, retirees as well. And that's one thing that we're concerned about is we've had several, a few um, retired miners die from COVID disease and get, or get sick from it. So it's, it's, you know, something to worry about. It's serious and we need to take, uh, take precautions. So, yeah. But thank y'all for what y'all are doing and getting this message out. So I, we appreciate that so much. Yeah, well, we sincerely appreciate your support. And, and, and real quick, if there's other workers that may not be union represented out there that have some issues, uh, you know, with something like that with black lung or something, is there a number that the, the, do y'all work with those folks at all? And if, if so, is there a number that they can reach you at? Sure. They can call our, our office at 205-322-2333. And we work with any workers for, you know, we don't discriminate as far as that goes, but we, um, glad to help anyone who's been injured on the job. That's, that's not a problem. Yeah. We're, you know, we're constantly talking about the same thing. It, uh, uh, even though we're, we're extremely vocal and, uh, union activists, uh, it's a constant struggle. We work with people on a daily basis in non-union areas to try to help them out to, uh, show them the how to file uh, board charges with the National Labor Relations Board and things like that. So, you know, that's that's good work on everybody's part. Hey, absolutely. we certainly appreciate you calling in. All right. Thank you, guys. Yeah. Good luck. Have a good Saturday. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, again, that was Jack Jacobs. He's an attorney at Maple Tucker and Jacobs LLC. Uh, he's a attorney for workers. If you've got any problems, you know, uh, reach out to him, mtnj.com. Uh, and so we are going to be taking another break right about now. If you want to call us on the other side, again, the number is 1-866-494-WBNN, 1-866-494-9866. This is the Valley Labor Report with Jacob Morrison and David Storm. We had a little bit of an echo during the ad break, but it doesn't sound like we've got one right now. It sounds like everything's good. So um, uh, so the last story that we wanted to talk about here is, and I talked about this in the opening, is that um, it is just an absolute vampire. A vice president at Mazda Toyota uh, was quoted in AL.com just salivating at the newly burgeoning surplus labor pool in Alabama. Don't let yourself be taken advantage of. He was talking about how, you know, this would be a win-win and how they were going to have to bring in people from out, out of out of state and now they're going to be able to hire people in state. And, you know, don't fall for any. It's a win-win for them. Yeah, there's no win on there's no win on the employees part no. whenever the labor market is so saturated with people out of out of work. And and, and effectively what they're going to do is reduce their higher end rates mm-hmm. for those employees. It happens consistently. Anytime there's high unemployment, you're going to see salaries across the board coming down. One more reason why you should be negotiating collectively because those those higher end rates are set. They're guaranteed. Uh, this it's uh, but uh, what do you expect? You know, Japanese companies have 
consistently been anti-union uh, throughout their history and yeah. and uh, and. Well, throughout their history in general, but especially as the ones that came into Alabama, that's one of the reasons why they come to Alabama so exactly. much. Exactly. That is one of the reasons that they come to uh, not just Japanese companies, but these European companies that in, in Europe or in Germany, they have these, you know, they, they put on these airs of, of progressivism and, and I, oh, I care about the workers, but that's all just a bunch of nonsense. None of these big multinational corporations care about the workers. That's why they come to places like Alabama, where union density is so low. That's why they go to places like um, Mississippi, to, uh, uh, Mississippi, at, or, Mississippi or out of country in South and Central America where they can pay workers pennies. It's because they want to extract the most money from human beings as possible. They just want to wring all of the value out of your body that they can. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. And that's why organizing is so important. And I mean, so at, at the end of the day, the, the employees are looked at as resources. And if you talk to right. anybody in human resources, I mean, there's a reason why they're called human resources in your plant. Uh, a lot of them have moved in the past few years to what they uh, they like to term labor relations. But uh, they look right. at us as resources, the same as gas, the same as oil, the same as anything that they can extract, because that's what it's all about, is extracting the maximum value from your workers that you can. And that's why, you know, like people say that it's, you know, the the, the class struggle language is really radical and it's not necessary or, or whatever. And it's just it's just true that the working class and the employing class have fundamentally contradicting motivations and incentives. Like, you know, as a worker, you want to do the least amount of work for the most amount of money. As an employer, you want the most amount of work for the least amount of money. And so those contradict. And it's not even it's not even necessarily a value judgment on the employer, although, you know, of, of course, in, in a, when it gets to a certain point, it, it of course is when you're paying pennies on the dollar or when you have terrible safe. Uh, a terribly unsafe conditions. It's a value judgment, but but I think you know it is a, it is a value judgment. Though yeah. I mean, call it for what it is, Jacob. I, I mean, it is a value judgment. Whenever you've got people that can that that can't buy a car, that can't afford a home, that 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 can't afford health care, that children are are having to use SNAP or right. they're having to use uh, uh, the subsidized lunches at school, that mm. is a value judgment on their mm. part. And and they they want to overlook that. They want us to overlook it and they want, you know, and, and these these folks are buying, you know, yachts down in Mobile and putting them on the bay and, and flying out to Paris and what have you every 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 uh, year for for vacation while their employees are absolutely struggling right and and you know while i was working at the restaurant we paid people in the back of the house eight dollars an hour while the person that owned the restaurant had two houses and a jet ski and and, you know he didn't do any of the work uh in the restaurant and that's just and, and and so yeah and and what we're telling you is we're not we're not like go vote for this person or go vote for that person. Of course, when we get close to elections, we'll tell you our thoughts about politicians and and we'll tell you probably who we're going to vote for. And we're not we're not shy about that. We have we have a particular set of politics and we're not shy about that, right? But but fundamentally, you know, it's the, about us coming together. It's about us coming it's together. It's about us coming together to get organizing to get, yep, to solidarity. Uh, you know, as as workers, as people. Like I don't, you know, I. Uh, 
I think you're wrong, right? If, if you go and, and vote for Trump or somebody, but like, like at, at, at the fundamental level, like I don't care. It's much more important to me that we come together and we organize uh, for each other, you know? And that's, and so like, if you want to work on the construction of the Mazda Toyota plant, get with the iron, iron workers, local 477 or the IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 558. Don't go work for some non-union contractor that'll just exploit you. They won't care about your safety. These unions, like David said, they have safety committees. That You will have better wages. You'll have better benefits. Get with them. If you get a job for the plant, then once you get in, you need to organize. You need to organize because they're not going to care about you. They're going to try to make the most amount of money off of your back that they can. And so what the, the good thing for you, what, what would be good for you and your brothers and sisters on the job is to organize. So get with us. Yeah. We'll we'll uh, we'll talk to you. We'll counsel you about like, you know, OK, what are the unions in our area? What's going to be the best fit for you? We'll tell you about the philosophy of all the different unions. You'll get to meet people from different unions. You know, uh, like like w- David and I, like uh, we've got a particular set of politics and we've got a particular set of, of uh, politics about unions as well. But like, I don't care who you organize with as long as you organize, yeah. because like I care about you like as a person, as an individual or a, 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 as a group of people. And I want y'all to have better lives. And so like, I don't care if you organize with my union or not. I just want you to organize. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we we and politics aside, I could it's the same way with me. I could care yeah. less whether you're Republican, uh, conservative, uh, liberal, libertarian. I, it don't matter to me. Right. I mean, the, at the end of the day, what we're looking for is people that'll come together and stick with us, get better wages, better benefits, better health care, safer working conditions. All these wonderful things is provided by collective bargaining, bargaining yeah. as a group. So again, if you want to work on the construction of that plant, get with the Iron Workers Local 477 or IBEW Local 558. Yep. And this if you're is, unsure how to get in touch with them, reach out to us on Facebook or yep. e- anywhere that we're we're on social media. Yeah, this has been the Valley Labor Report. Thanks for listening to us, folks. We will see you next week. <laughs>